Hey guys, Tucker here, co-host of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. Before we get into this week's show, I wanted to let you know that we're currently looking for more projects. So for any of you guys that listen to the show that may be an agent or otherwise that have a property that you're looking to sell, we'd love to hear from you. Obviously, we're looking to purchase properties that are maybe not best suited for the retail market or maybe they need to be redeveloped. So we do renovations and we do new construction so we could buy an existing home that maybe it smells like cigarette smoke, maybe it hasn't been updated in decades, maybe it's got some fun functional issues, some problems like that, or maybe it's just in an area that is best suited to take the house down, partition the lot, maybe build a couple new homes, or just build one new home in its place, and anything in between. So if you guys out there in Listenerland have anything that would be best suited selling to a development company like ours, we'd love to hear from you. You can go to our website, which is ttmdevelopmentcompany.com, and when you go there, there's a Contact Us tab. Click on that, and you can send us a message, and we'll get back to you shortly thereafter. We'd love to hear from any of you guys out there that have a property like this, and hopefully we can do a deal together. This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihue from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, everybody out there in listening land, welcome back. This is episode 69 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. I am your host, as always, Tucker Merrihue, and I'm here with our co-host. We're back after a couple weeks off, Mr. Steve Nassar. What's up, Steve-o? Hey, good to be back on the show. Hope you had a great fourth. Summer is well underway. You took it's a little been. week off. I think we in in the interim since the last show, I think we've both been to Bend for a little while. Yeah, I went last week over the, and then over the weekend, and I think you were there the week before that. Yeah, I was there over the 4th of July. I was there for about a week myself. Some work, some play. Got to play a little golf. I heard you did too. I played Pronghorn, which is a great course, just like 20 minutes outside of Bend. Had an interesting caddy, kind of a crusty character, because now if you play in a foursome, they require you to have a caddy. So that was interesting. And then I had what some kind of... What was his name? Do you remember? Zach? Zach or something. Younger he said guy? his home. Yeah, he said his home course was it was Tethero, but he was kind of those caddies kind of roam. There's like a caddy company, I yeah. guess, that, yep. that books them to the different nicer courses. Interesting guy. He was. <laughs> he had a lot of funny stories. But, yeah. Uh, anyway, that was the first time I played with an actual caddy in all the years that I played. Golf. Oh really? Yeah. yeah. It's kind of interesting, huh? Did you play? You played obviously the Nicholas course, the public course. Yeah, yeah, I'm not a member, so to yeah, speak. There, yeah, but yeah. the the Nicholas course is a, a phenomenal course. I mean, it is so it much is. better than anything here in Portland. It's crazy. Oh my gosh, yeah, it's like the grass is like carpet. It's it beautiful. Really it's beautiful. I actually got to play the Fazio course there. I had somebody that hooked me up. They knew somebody that knew somebody and got me on there. And it's actually the views. Some of the views are really cool from the private side. That pronghorn, it's interesting. I recently did a database touch where I emailed everybody in my database, past clients, leads, et cetera. And this is kind of an interesting little factoid. What it was was the the 15 best golf courses in Oregon. Let's share this with our listeners. I just Googled it. You can actually Google the best golf courses in Oregon, and it, it was Golf Digest. So the top 15 
believe it or not, Tucker, number one, two, three, and four are all Bandon. Can you believe that? I mean, I guess it makes sense. Pacific Dunes, Bandon Dunes, Old McDonald, Bandon, Bandon Trails. You Have you been there? I haven't, but I've heard good things. Yeah. Yeah. Very purist. I've been there once, and I only played one of them. Then from there, Pronghorn is six and seven. So the Nicholas course is actually number six. The Fazio is number seven. Number wow. five was a Eugene Country Club. Eight is Pumpkin Ridge, Witch Hollow. Is that the private side there? Yeah, I, I think, think so, it is. Yeah. Ghost Creek might be the public one. And actually, Ghost Creek is on number 13 here. Crosswater and Sun River is number nine, which is a good course as well. Private, though. It used to be public, but now, now it's private. Tethro's 10. Waverly in Portland. The Country Club is 11. Portland Golf Club is 12. Pumpkin Ridge, Ghost Creek is 13. Columbia Edgewater is 14. And then 15 is the other one that I was going to tell you you got to play in Bend, Brasada. I played there this last time. You do have to stay on site there to play there. They recently made that change about a year ago. Prior to that, you could just show up like Pronghorn and just play. But I have to tell you, I actually liked Brasada better than Pronghorn. And I do like Pronghorn a lot. The entire course is built up basically on a hillside of of a mountain. And so the views, while most courses, you're pretty happy if like six, seven, eight holes have great views. 15, 16 of these holes have just phenomenal territorial mountain views, very wide fairways, really fun. So sometime you'll have to get over there and play Brasada. But that's I've about heard, the Portland Golf Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard good things. You know, I when I was in Bend, I always pull the little magazines, you know, I want to see what's, yeah, I just kind of an addiction I have, right. Of checking out houses and what's for sale and prices. And I was seeing prices at Brasada and it was like, you know, it's all newer type construction cause it's a newer course. Right. And it seemed like, you know, the lower end was like seven ninety nine, and then it, you know, the mid higher points was like 1.2, 1.3 million, something like that out there. So definitely pricey, which I don't know, it leads me to think a little bit about, you know, how many of these kind of pricey, elevated type communities can exist around a town that only has 90,000 people in it. I love Ben, but it just, you know, it's like another place, right? So I hope they all make it and I'm sure they will, but it just, you know, makes me scratch my head a little bit. Yeah, well, interestingly enough, Brasada and Pronghorn have kind of a rivalry. I noticed this. I kind of could just pick up on it. And I asked the guy at Brasada and he goes, yeah, you know, we kind of have a healthy rivalry because we're pulling the same, we're competing right. for the same dollars, be it the golf dollars or the people staying there or, or people buying there. They both were built out right before the recession and they both went, it was touch and go for both of them. When they built out Pronghorn, it was going to be a purely private club. Everything private. So if you bought a house there, you could golf there. If you didn't buy a house there, you couldn't play there. You couldn't even stay there, I don't think. And then, of course, the recession hit, and they're like, oh, maybe we'll let some other people play here <laughs> and make some more money. Brasada also was touch and go. They both you know, were built out in like 06, 07, and, and went through a really slow, rough period through the downturn. They're both back in full force, though. They're building a lot of houses around both of them. And oh, yeah. They've done fairly well recently but yeah it's kind of interesting and i'm with you i mean they are really cool communities they both have great swimming pools 
And just, you know, if you're if you're into golf and you, you want to this time of year lay by a swimming pool, Brasada's swimming pool has big, huge water slide. You know, it's great for kids and families. And Pronghorn has some has a similar thing. It's not quite as nice in the swimming pool side of things as Brasada, but really cool, really cool communities. And yeah, fun drive out there from Bend. Oh, yeah. But yeah, cool trip. Bend's always fun. Love it out there. May spend some more time there eventually, that's for sure. But I guess coming back to to the Portland market here, what's been going on with you since we since we last talked? I think we had a show a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago with Joe, but since then, sure, a lot's been going on. Yeah, no, it's been good. It's been good. We're busy. We're busy. I know we're going to talk a little bit about the market and and what we have going on, but I thought I would just chat with our listeners and you, you know, a little bit about what we're doing and seeing, and you know, some of the stuff we're talking about with our agents, you know. One of the cool things, I did a presentation for our people here recently, and we were kind of talking about like sales and negotiation tactics, and it was kind of cool. This was kind of something I'd I'd been teaching and, and, you know, using for a couple years now. And then I got a little bit of validation from an article I read on CNBC about Warren Buffett that kind of shows, you know, him using a similar strategy or tactic. And I thought it was kind of cool, and I thought I'd share it with our listeners it's kind of the whole concept, whether and this this works great if you're in negotiations with a realtor. It also works great if you're selling yourself to a you know a client, be it a listing or a, a buyer. But it's kind of I'll read here a, a snippet of it from this article. It says, talking about Warren Buffett, it says, I've been getting his annual shareholder reports for more than 15 years now, and I've noticed something that he does as a CEO of the company Berkshire Hathaway that I've never seen in any other report, says this person. On the first or second page of the report, he describes an error, a mistake that Hena's company made the previous year. It is so disarming, this person says. I say to myself every time, oh, this guy is being straight with us. What is he going to say next? I need to pay attention to everything he says. And that's when he describes the strengths. And I thought that was kind of a cool strategy and tactic. And I've kind of used something similar, you know, myself and, and I've taught it to our people with negotiations is is to kind of, you know, put something out there that is disarming or, you know, it's kind, it's important that it be somewhat benign. Obviously, you don't want to say something catastrophic about yourself or your business that's going to, you know, shut down <laughs> the process. But this also works with a listing, too. If you're if you're describing one of your listings to someone and they're, they're asking questions about it and, you know, why is it still available? Why is it still active? Why hasn't it sold? You know, you, if you're straight with them versus rose colored glasses, you know, there's a tendency, a lot of times agents will be like, well, it's great. Here's all the great things about it. It kind of shuts people down. They're like, okay, you, you know, you clearly have wishful thinking and a little bit of the rose colored glasses going on. So by being straight upfront, you know, even saying that one, you know, thing wrong with the listing that is again, somewhat benign you don't want to shut them down and say something horrific about it that shuts the process down and obviously there's an art and a skill to this the same can be true when you're trying to get the business of a client saying something about yourself or your business or like warren buffett does a mistake i thought that was cool so i wanted to share that with our people one of the other things on my team that we've kind of been implementing that's kind of a new earth concept. I don't know that I've heard of too many other agents that are are using something like this, but 
I've got a, a licensed transaction coordinator on my team, and we've kind of given him kind of a, a role. I don't, I wouldn't say it's his only role, but kind of you know a mindset that he's an area manager for us around our listings. I know we've talked on this show a lot about all the things we're doing. You know, when we list a, a property, and especially the especially the properties that we know look great. They're going to show great in the marketing. We've got a realistic seller, so we feel good about our pricing and the, the likelihood that it's going to move in a timely fashion. We're really conscientious to to really hit that area hard, and, and we, we're doing it through our marketing platform and, and some of the other marketing tools available, but everything from postcards to canvassing the area with door hangers and advertising the open house in advance of it while also showcasing some of our marketing. We're putting directionals everywhere. And so this member of my team that we call the area manager, he's licensed, so we're able to give him a tiny little bit of the commission, and he just kind of oversees that process. And he's really got a focused eye on that listing and making sure that the surrounding area of it is really, really well-covered, well-marketed, and it's been it's been working great for us. I mean, we are just getting a lot of listings. My, remember, we we joked on here, Tucker, the listings having babies. Well, I mean, we've been really running with that theory and that philosophy, and it's been working really, really well. And and getting other listings from the success and the great marketing on our other listings. One of the things we're doing, and I've been telling our agents a lot about, is twilight shoots. It's kind of interesting. I've been really making a big push to do twilight shoots for homes and price points that you wouldn't automatically think of that. I think most of our listeners, you know, it's no big secret that if you get a $2 million listing, it looks really cool to get your photographer out there right at dusk and turn on all the lights and have a beautiful sky, maybe with some clouds in it that really pop and, you know, get that really great front shot that will be everywhere in the marketing, especially, I mean, the front shot of the house is the most important shot of the house. It's when, when people are searching online, it's that one that grabs people and by having it grab them, then they click on it and they will look at the rest of the marketing that you have there. So, but what we've been doing and what I've been doing is going to these listing appointments at six to $900,000 houses that are, you know, obviously they have to have good curb appeal for this to really work. And I've been promoting like we're going to do a twilight shoot and I'll show them some of the twilight shoots we've done for similar properties on our marketing platform. It's $150 and a click of a button. And we usually will schedule the photography around 4 p.m. somewhere thereabouts. And then the photographer comes. I mean, this time of year, it's it's about eight o'clock. They're coming. And as we get you know longer into the season, it'll be earlier and earlier. But I even tell my sellers, you don't have to leave for the twilight shoot. Just stay out of the windows, turn on all the outside lights, and he'll come. He'll set up, and he'll he'll take some more shots. And you know, we've what, been though? having a not to cut you off, but well, twofold. One is I think it's great. I mean, if anybody goes to our Facebook page for the Portland Real Estate Podcast, backdrop picture on that. It's our Street of Dreams home that we did a twilight shoot on four years ago. So it's mm-hmm. a it's a usable marketing piece moving forward, not only for the sellers but for you as the agent. But I did notice one that somebody did, and it wasn't your listing. Because if it was, I would have told you. <laughs> but they did all that work to do the twilight shoot, right? And they have a roll-up, ratty-ass-looking basketball hoop that they left in the driveway. And I thought to myself, what kind of a ding-dong takes that shot and isn't like, hey, can we just roll that thing off to the left here a little bit for the shot so you don't have this ratty net and you know sandbags sitting on this roll-away basketball hoop while you're trying to make this nice you know presentation nighttime shot, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're going to do that, 
take the damn basketball hoop out of the way if it's a rollaway. Yeah. Please. Yeah. No, I agree. And it works well with what we're doing because that shot goes out in the postcard to all the houses in that area. So they, they're seeing there like, hey, in, in a quick glance, and that's the great thing about a twilight shoot, unlike a video or you know some of the 3D technology where you have to rely on them to actually log in and, and play with it. Twilight shoot just grabs you quickly. You see it and you're and it pops and it's a it's a cutting edge, immediate visual piece for somebody to see. So we've had a lot of success with that. You know, I've just been preaching to our agents, you know, to approach your listings, and this is kind of a different mindset, but approach your listings with an abundance mindset. You know, I think so many agents go to a listing, go into a listing with a mindset of what is the absolute least I can do in order to sell this house. And and I just I just have to caution them. That's such a terrible way to approach your business because marketing is so important for what we do. It truly is, even though as realtors, I, I think we wear a lot of different hats. We're a marketer, we're a negotiator, we're an advisor. But really, it all starts with the marketing. If, if we don't do an effective job of marketing the property, there's not going to really be anything to negotiate. There's not going to be you know much to advise them on. So it is such an important thing we do and to go into that listing and know this is a huge part of why I am getting a twenty, dollars $25,000 commission check. It makes sense to spend some money and do a phenomenal job in promoting that. And that will not only make your sellers happy, obviously it helps sell the house, and makes the sellers happy, but it'll get you business around it. And that's one thing that we're really pushing our agents to to really get in and see. And, you know, look at it from your standpoint, Tucker. I mean, can you imagine a builder going into a property with the mindset, hey, I'm going to build this and I'm uh, here's the bar of, you know, where my seller wants me to be to be happy. I'm just going to go a smidge higher than that. I mean, what a, that would be a terrible, terrible way to approach what you do. And it's unfortunate when realtors look at it that way. And, and by that, I, I mean... We hear it sometimes, you know, oh, this house is going to sell quickly. I don't need to do a bunch of marketing. Well, maybe that is true, but would you have even more interest? Would you have a higher perception of value? Would you get better offers? Would you make the seller more happy that, hey, you deserve that paycheck that you got because of what you did? And would you get other neighbors going, hey, the reason it sold quickly was because of their marketing? So it's just a, it's a different mindset. I definitely, you know, encourage our agents and my team and myself to just keep that in mind as we're, as we're, you know, going about our business. I'll wrap up here real quickly. I mean, on the brokerage, you know, we're about to a thousand agents. That's an official number, unofficial number. Wow. Um, we haven't you, done a count uh, recently, but I think I we're think to about a thousand. Just to give some perspective, weren't you guys at like 500 a year ago ish? 600 yeah. yeah i think last summer we were we hit 600 yeah that's a big jump yeah as the you know as the snowball gets bigger every revolution is a lot more <laughs> yeah you pick up a lot more agents that are hanging yeah. out you know fly, yeah rolling so on the you, ball, right <laughs> if you grow by 50 percent when you're this size it's a big number for yeah. sure yeah we've been hiring some large teams lately want to have three four teams that are 25 30 35 40 in in that ballpark kudos to the show i've had a couple of avid listeners of the podcast which is always great and yeah so things are going really good in that regards and then last thing we got going on in the brokerage is i'm hoping to take our new website live in the next 30 days as 
as good as things are going around here, I always tell, you know, people, new agents that I meet that are looking at our company, I said, please don't judge us by our current website because that's changing soon. And the sooner, (laughs) the better. But in the next 30 days, we should have that live. We rolled out a cool feature that'll be on it is a live chat. So anyone that's on the website can live 24 hours a day, chat with our team and get questions answered or help in any regards. So there's some of the stuff we have going on. Hey, one question I had for you, Tucker. Are you going to the block party this year? It's Street of Dreams time coming up. Yes, and my wife is not pregnant this year, so we're going, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're back, you know, back in the swing of normal life when you don't have to deal with all that stuff. So, yeah, we're definitely going. I think we got some tickets lined up already, and I'm assuming you're going to be there as well. Yeah, I will. I will. What have you heard about it this year? Anything? I heard that it's going to be a squeaky race to the finish to get her done. Is that uh, always the case, though? Yeah. I mean, I think this year more than others, a couple of the you know service providers and product providers, you know, they provide stuff to us as well. So we've had some you know chit chats on the side as far as how things are going up there. And there's been some there's some ones that are going to be pretty close to the finish line. So we'll see. They're they're trying to cram a lot of construction into a little bit of time, but yeah, like you said, somehow miraculously. Everybody loses a few years of their life, but they get them to the finish line for the show. So, you know, that's just how the show goes every year. I can't imagine the guys that do it every year. It's not good for your life or your lifespan. That's for sure. What have you heard about the caliber of the homes? Yeah, yeah. So I've heard they're kind of different. You know, I, other than that, I I haven't looked too far into it. I figured I'd kind of surprise myself. I don't Uh, know much either. yeah, Yeah. I know there's maybe there's one kind of outlandish one I've heard that's, I think it's got some Chinese money behind it and they're trying to make a, an impact on this market so that people remember them with other projects that they do or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I could be wrong. But anyway, that's that's just what I've heard. But I'm sure it'll be a good party and, you know, we'll be there. So it'll cool. Be cool. Yeah. Coming soon. Coming yeah, soon. Coming, coming soon. So what's to a what's going on with you guys here. and your business? Well, I will say this before I get into it too much. I made a comment on the last show that I thought that a few realtors were smoking crack about their listing prices. And I will say I'm not too big of a, well, I'm a big enough person I could admit when I was wrong. And two of those that really kind of spurred me to make that comment went pending. So I'm not sure how I feel about that. I'm I'm obviously happy that it worked out for whoever, but it's kind of a scary and happy feeling to see houses go pending for prices that I thought were just so outlandish that, you know, I don't know what that means exactly. But anyway, I just figured I'd I'd say that on the, or, you know, on the air here, but we'll talk about that more when we get into it. So you're saying smoking crack is good. Well, Basically. I mean, not usually, but when you err on the high side with prices on some houses right now, it's like you can put a number on it and sometimes people pay it, I guess. So we'll, we'll see. But so anyway, that was the first thing. Second thing, we're starting a new project. We don't do a lot of infill stuff with new construction in Southeast Portland. We haven't in a little bit, but we are starting a new one in Woodstock. So we've got a one-off lot that we're going to start off. Just It's on 51st, just, just inside 52nd, just south of Woodstock. And so good little area and rapidly gentrifying part of Woodstock. We'll put it that way. Great so, area. Great yeah. area. Close to the new seasons. Yeah, close to the new seasons. So it's, you know, I think Woodstock's a, it's got a lot of amenities compared to other parts of Southeast. So I, I personally think Woodstock's got better underlying fundamentals than than other pockets for sure. So that's why we're going to go ahead and build new there versus, you know, doing some type of a lower price point rehab. So that's what we got going on there. We've got a two lot partition that we're finally finishing up on Upper Drive that we're going to be starting here very soon. We last minute, we kind of have to work with whenever you're doing developments in, in Lake Oswego, 
I call it the Republic of Lake Oswego because you have to work with, you might own the land, but that doesn't mean that you get full say in what you want to do with anything. And you have to kind of get over that, which I have, but it's still a little frustrating at times. But anyway, you have to work with the city and you have to work with the neighborhood associations that don't necessarily have a say, but they can cause friction and push back and just essentially more time and headache that you as the developer or builder have to deal with. So we basically had our two out partition set up where we had we were going to put the access road on the right side because it's set up as a road frontage lot and then a, a flag lot, essentially. But it's each lot's a half acre, so it doesn't really feel like a flag lot. It just feels like a private drive back to the second lot. But we had the the road set up on the right side. And I met with the basically the city wanted us to kind of shift the road so that the access point was almost in the middle of the lot. And then it S curved back to the right. Well, it was going to be challenging to build a house that had enough parking and didn't feel weird having that S curve across your front yard, essentially, because and the reason they want us to do that is because there were three trees that they were pretty adamant about wanting us to keep. And so instead of kind of going back and forth on email and, you know, getting spiteful and saying things that, you know, aren't very nice, I just decided to let's go sit down and, and kind of work this out. And it turned out to be a really good idea. So we sat down, we worked it out. And there basically their idea was, OK, let's switch the access road to the other side, which we didn't do originally because there's more trees that have to be cut that way. But at the same time, those trees that had to be cut are kind of scab type trees. They're not as nice and they're, they're not trees that complement the neighborhood quite as much. So they were okay with us cutting more, even though they were worse trees. And so we, we finally came to a resolution that worked for both of us. We flipped our plan. So we basically mirror imaged them, flipped them. And now we're in the 10 day comment period here where everybody gets to basically give their comments on how they either like what we're doing or they hate the fact that we're developing anything. And I'm sure there'll be a few of those comments as well. So once we get through that, then our plat will be, you know, finalized with the city and then we can record it with the county and we can start building. So excited to get Do this Do you get going. to know those comments as they come in? Do you oh, have yeah. any? They forward them you all. you get to read them real time? Yep. We get a, re we get, well, they, they forward them all at once at the end. And so basically what ends up happening is people write in and they, usually it's email, sometimes it's letter, but they have an email on the sign. So it, when they ask <laughs> you ask, you shall receive sometimes, right? And so generally the people that take the time to comment are those that are adamantly opposed to mm -hmm. not only tree Funny cutting. Funny how that works, isn't it? Yeah, but also development in general. So the, the comments can be very spiteful. And then, of course, I live in this neighborhood as well. So I know where all these people live that essentially think that I'm the Antichrist because all I'm trying to do is, you know, put in nice newer housing as opposed to the old ratty housing that was there. But such is life. So Anyway, we're getting close on that. I'm excited to get it going. Each property is going to have a half acre lot. It's right on Upper Drive, which is a real hot part of Lake Oswego, you know, which is no surprise to me at this point. But we're really excited about it. We could have done three lots. So that's kind of the, the compensating factor. But we're doing two instead, just because I think it'll make for a better product. Each lot will be a half acre. They'll have three car garages. You'll have plenty of parking. I just think it'll make for a better end product. And I think the market will reward us for it. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. can you plant positive comments? <laughs> I wish that I could. I mean, I know enough people. It's funny that I went, you know, talking about Fourth of July, right? Because we haven't recorded a show since then. So I went to a barbecue and all the people that live around me, with the exception of two, are new to the neighborhood. And they're newer. They're kind of, you know, in our age bracket, you know, younger professional types. You know, they're they're doing things. They're they're busy people. Right. They got kids. They got jobs. Not generally the type of people that complain about things because their life's too busy. But 
one of them had a party and actually the person that had the party, an ex Timbers player who now runs all of their recruiting and contract signing. And so it ended up being like a Timbers party plus all of our neighbors, which it was cool. And, and a, one of our, one of the guys actually listens to our show. He enjoys both myself and you. So there you go. But yeah. So anyway, it was interesting though, because everybody at the barbecue was not an Oregonian. I myself and my wife were the only ones that were true Oregonians. Everybody else was a transplant. So it was kind of interesting. I, I can't remember the last time I was at a party where we were the only Oregonians there. And so mm-hmm. some people that would obviously irritate them and be like, go back to where you came from and whatever. But I, you know, I think it's good. And I think it's good for that area specifically because, you know, quite honestly, a lot of these newer people moving in are a lot nicer than some of the crusty old people that have been there for a long time. So, mm-hmm. so anyway, pretty interesting to see that, but yeah, we're excited to get that project going. And then we've got another view lot project that we're going to finally get going across the kind of caddy corner from that across the street that looks over the entire lake. So we're making some progress on that as well. So pretty cool stuff we got on the horizon. You know, other than that, did you see, just because I've kind of been talking about crusty, angry people on this show a little bit. Did you see that article that came out about a week ago or so that was, I think it was in Southeast or Northeast where they spray painted all over those people's car that were from California and their house that said, go back to California. Did you see that story at all? I didn't. I didn't, but I've seen similar ones. That's nuts. Yeah. I mean, we've seen the ones where they put the like no Cal Cal state of California with an X through it on like real estate signs. You know, that was a story that buddy of mine, Quinn had happened to him. And I'm sure you probably know Quinn as well, but Yeah. yeah, this, they actually took it a step further And they spray painted the car that had California plates and then spray painted their house as well, which, you know, that's just too much. I think people need to, I don't know what's wrong with people here. There's something in the water, man. They're just, they need to get over it, I think, at this point. Yeah, yeah. Every, nobody's a native Oregonian if you go far back enough. Yeah, well, that's true. Other Uh, than maybe, maybe some, you know, actual native, native Indians. My dad was from California. My mom was born here, but, you know, there's been I mean, an influx that, of people forever, right? That's not to say people aren't born here. I'm not saying that, but but even those that are born here, you know, somebody from their family migrated here at some point. So, I mean, if you want to get real technical, yeah, you just you just have to you have to move on. It's great. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being a native Oregonian and, and you know, being proud of that. I, I get that. But but to hate on those that aren't is the wrong approach and the wrong tactic. I agree. And I would say going as far as spray painting their car in their house is <laughs> definitely the wrong tactic. And definitely to do that. Yes. Yeah. So yes. anyway, but so that's pretty much what's going on with me. You know, Cliff Notes version anyway. So maybe we segue into talking about the market here a little bit. Yeah. So it's you know, it's good, Tucker. I got to tell you, I mean, I a year ago, I was saying we're due for a correction. I still think we're due for a correction. But so far, I mean, I'm not feeling it in my personal business. If anything, this summer has been a heightened amount of business for us. I think if, if I look at my numbers right now for the year, year to date, I think I'm finally back to where I should be. In comparison to last year, which is kind of big because we had such a slow start. You know, if you had looked at my numbers in March and April, it was just it was disgusting how low they were compared to where they should be. So it tells you that May, June, July have just been phenomenal months, way better than last year's. And I don't see a let up there. So my hope is that we that continues and I have a far better year this year than last year. And I think, you know, that's probably true for others as well out there. 
So I I don't personally see a let up yet. I I mean I I do think it's going to happen at some point. Now that said, I've heard others kind of talk a little bit about it and I've what I'm noticing with my personal listings is if it's priced right and it doesn't have, you know, a dysfunctional component to it, be, busy street, bad floor plan, you know, Icky some, house, some type of they, functional obsolescence. Yeah, they they tend to sell well. I'm not, you know, a big tell will be when that's not the case. When we're seeing stuff stay on the market longer, and that isn't the case. I'm not seeing that on my team. I've heard others say in passing that they're seeing a little bit more of that. Have you heard that at all, Tucker? Well, kind of. Here's the tale of two two tapes, right? So one would be we listed a property over the weekend. We had 13 showings. Okay, so that. To me, says, "Wow, market's still pretty What's crazy." Price right? point? It's battle axe price point. Yeah, yeah. So, but that being said, thirteen showings—that's a lot of showings, right? So, you could have had fifty a year ago, though. <laughs> that's true. That's a good point. But I'm looking at the positive here, right? Yeah, still thirteen no, showings over a week. So that's good. Now, on the flip side, I went to to dinner last week, and also talking to people at this barbecue that I talked about earlier. There's a little bit of reluctance. I, I was part of two conversations where buyers were a little reluctant or a little bit weary, right? The At the barbecue, the people that had just bought across the street from us, kind of catty corner, they were asking my opinion because they bought a brand new home and they paid a fair amount for it. You know, what I thought of, you know, where prices are at and, you know, are they going to get screwed and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And obviously, you know, I endorse that area like Oswego. I live there. I invest there. I, I don't feel like that's an at-risk area. But the point is, is that they they were asking those questions, right? And then when I was out at dinner, I, I was eavesdropping on a conversation, I will say. But I, I did hear it was a realtor and it was a gal that she was talking to about trying to get her into a house. The gal was saying that her, her dad was, you know, telling her to pump the brakes and not buy right now. And so I think there's a little bit of reluctance in the market. And maybe that's what you're hearing from other agents that maybe have a house that doesn't have a functional obsolescence, but isn't getting quite as much traction as they thought which basically means it's a pricing issue at that point, nothing else. But, you know, I think that there is a hint of that out there. But then again, you know, the realtors that I talked about smoking crack with their list price, they got the price, you know, or pretty close Mm -hmm. to it. So you've got people that are paying whatever they need to pay to get the house that they really want. And then you've got the other side of the coin, which is probably less people, but some that are feeling some reluctance and maybe aren't willing to be quite as aggressive right now based on the way that they feel the market may go in the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I mean, it's a, you know, it's always an interesting conversation. Buyers bring it up to us all the time. Hey, I don't want to buy right now. I think the market's a little heated. It's hard to say, you know, absolutely not. No, no way, Jose, the market's, you know, is perfect and primed and you're going to get see tons of appreciation from today's pricing. It's hard to say that. What you can say and feel good about saying is like, look, even you know, if you're investing in real estate, if you're looking to turn something quickly or you're only going to be there for a couple of years, you know, maybe maybe you do want to have that mindset. But if you're going to be there, if this is your home, if this is where you're going to put your feet up every night for the next five, six plus seven plus years, you can be fairly confident that you're going to do OK in, in the purchase. And, and all you have to do is look back to the people who bought in 2006, you know. Yeah, they they bought Hive, no no doubt about it. And for many years, they were buried in that house, but they're back even. And you know, it it took about eight nine years back to you know around maybe closer to ten and somewhere around you know in the last couple of years, they're back to even in most cases. And 
and some are even higher. So that's a big part of the conversation when we, when we hear that reluctance. But I do get it. I do get it. And unfortunately, not everyone knows confidently that they will be in a house that long. Of course, that's the million dollar question, but that's the fun of real estate, right? Yeah. Well, uh, so as far as like the actual numbers go, because we've this is commentary based on, you know, the hard line numbers, which inventory rose 0.1. So we're at 1.6 months, which is really, you know, negligible, right? I mean, it's we're 1.5, we're 1.6 months, we're still drastically under the national average. And it's it's still in that kind of crazy, you know, I mean, the lowest we've been this year is 1.3. And the highest we've been is 1.9. So we're kind of, you know, right in the middle of that. It's hard to tell much of a difference between 1.3 and 1.6 in terms of actual inventory on the market. Total time on market went down one day. So again, arbitrary. You know, new listings did go up slightly, about 8%. Pending sales were down slightly, about 5%. So there is a slight move of more inventory, less pending sales, which could tick our inventory numbers up more moving forward. But it'll be interesting to see as we round out a summer here, right? Because summer's kind of the buying season. What's going to be the hangover or the leftover inventory that didn't go? And mm-hmm. does that stick around or do people say, ah, screw it, you know, let's pull it off. I, I didn't find a place I wanted to move to anyway. It was going to be a contingent, contingent type situation. You know, we'd have to accept a contingent and we'd have to offer as a contingent. So it'll be interesting to see how much of this inventory sticks around past the summer selling season. And if they continue to try and figure out a way to move it, you know, whether that's moving price downward or just time on market. So that, you know, I've always said this year is going to be kind of the tale of two markets. We've got the front end and the back end. I don't know. Maybe it's tail one market. We'll see. Yeah. You know, the other interesting thing, Tucker here, I kind of commented on this last month when we talked about the numbers, the average sales price, how much it's rising seems to be coming down. Do you remember? I mean, these, it says right here, prices continue to rise comparing 2017 to 2016 through June. The average sales price rose 9.8. That's the first time it hasn't been double digits. Last month, I think I commented how it was 10%. And prior to that, been like in the 11s. So that will be an interesting figure to keep your eye on. We, yeah, you know, so. we've been saying for a long time the appreciation can't keep going at the rate it's at, and so to see that ticking down is interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if you know, as we head forward in the next year, you see that like negative two, negative three percent growth rate as far as price, so you know, year over year for certain areas. I think that there's, mm-hmm. you know, that's it's got to happen, right? I don't think the floor is going to fall out anything because underlying financing is not what it was in 2006, Mm -hmm. 2007. So you've got, you know, people that as long as they have jobs and the bottom doesn't fall out of the economy, they're going to keep paying their mortgage, of course. But I think there's definitely, you know, some people that bought in certain areas that whether it be inventory driving it or emotion driving it, they probably paid a touch much. And, you know, depending on how many of those people decide that they need to move for whatever reason, any given time, that might put downward, you know, a little bit of downward pressure on pricing, depending on what inventory levels look like. So, but yeah, you're right. The momentum of price increasing eventually has to slow. And And it seems to be, it seems to be, it'll be interesting to keep an eye on that. Hey, in looking at different areas, did you notice that your North Portland has cooled a little bit? Average sales price change is 8.4. And I say that jokingly because you've always, and rightfully so, had, you know, kind of a, kept a, a guarded eye on North Portland. <laughs> you know, I, it's, I know it's a lot of been pe- up there. It has. And I know a lot of people that, you know, they operate pretty heavily up there in terms of redevelopment and, 
and buying and selling and you know that's fine but yeah i just i hate it up there <laughs> i'll be yeah. totally honest i just hate i hate going there i hate coming from there and it's really it's a traffic thing partly a riffraff thing but you know i get why some people want to live there for sure but god it's just such a pain in the butt to get in and out of there that that that's really my biggest hang up with it you know the other one and i don't know the logic behind this but it's just an interesting talking point Tigard Wilsonville, it's one of the lowest percent changes. It's 5.7%. Most everything else is double digits or really high. Yeah, most everything else is double digits. Well, here's, but, a, here's a theory on that. Have you tried to drive to Wilsonville at any time of day, uh, any day of the week? That's a good, that's a good theory. That's a good theory because it is a pain. It is it, a royal and, pain. And Tigard's pretty bad too as you get, you know, heading towards Sherwood on 99 there or whatever, but... You know, that yeah. that drive to Wilsonville, because my grandma lives down in Charbonneau, and, like, I literally have to really think about when I go down to see her because yeah. it's god-awful terrible. I mean, yeah. it, it could be noon on a Saturday, and you're sitting in stop traffic. And, yeah. you know, I think that might choke off that market a little bit because somebody does that two or three times, look at houses, they're going to be like, I can't do this every day, I, you know. You know, here's another theory, too, Tucker. There's a lot of new construction in Wilsonville. There is. So— so there's a lot more inventory being added on a regular basis. I wonder if that that even could be pulling Tiger down with it. Maybe Wilsonville has so much new inventory that it's it's skewing the numbers for Tiger as well. As but yeah, you are right about traffic there. It's too bad because Wilsonville is a pretty cool little town. I've always liked it. I like the layout of it. I like the amenities it has. I like the the industry it has as well. Um, oh, amenities wise, I mean it's. It's crazy how many places it has to eat and things to yeah. do. I mean, just comparing it to like West Lynn, right? I, I, you know, I went to high school in West Lynn. West Lynn still has jack crap for amenities in comparison, right? Yeah. And it's been, you know, the bigger city or the more developed city, at least so to speak, for many, many years. But now it doesn't have anywhere near the type of amenities yeah. that Wilsonville does. So, I mean, Wilsonville can be very self-sustaining, which I think is part it of is. allure. But at the same token, if you ever have to leave there, <laughs> like it yeah. sucks. It's too bad. They need to do something about that. They need to widen the freeway there or something. There right. is right. talk of that, by the way. There is talk. There's been talk about some some bill was in the House in Oregon talking about adding another lane to 217. There's no talk of the bridge across the river to Washington, unfortunately. But there is a bill, and, and I think it has some toll, some tolls tied to it. Have you been hearing about that? A little bit, but... You know, to be honest, we should research it a little bit more. Yeah. And I, I don't know enough about it to talk intelligently right now, but I, I saw it in passing. And I think it'd be an interesting topic to just put our tabs on. And you know what else we should talk back about in a future time? show? And look There's into. another they're trying to pass. I don't know if it's a bill or a law, but they're trying to decriminalize possession of methamphetamines, cocaine, heroin in small amounts. I get that they the, the prison systems can't handle all of that. But my worry on this and we'll, we can do some more research is that. We have a very large homeless problem as is, and people that come here aren't necessarily worried about getting arrested for doing drugs because, let's face it, a lot of them do drugs. But once you decriminalize that, the availability will go up dramatically because those supplying them will be less concerned about you know, being arrested or being bothered by police. So I think that that's going to only you – know, that's going to throw gasoline on an already big fire with our homeless problem. And I'm worried about that. I think that that's going to have unintended consequences, in air quotes, by doing that in the wrong place. Only in the Northwest do we decriminalize drugs, yet 
make it highly illegal to hold your phone while you're driving. <laughs> right, right. Because uh, like, yeah. there's also talk, have you heard about that? Washington just passed a law, and it's in Oregon they're trying to move it to, that if you're holding your phone at any point, I mean, basically everything's hands-free. You know how you, those Uber drivers and Lyft drivers have that little that little stand? Basically, everybody will have to have that in their car because if you're caught anywhere, whether it's a map or anything with your hands on your phone, you can get pulled over. And the tickets are getting crazy on that stuff. They're starting to hear. And I'm not saying there's not some rationale behind this. I think I think it is a dangerous thing in many no, regards and it has to be careful. But they're starting to treat it almost like the new the new DUI phone texting and, and driving. And, and so. But it's funny that in the same context, uh, what you said. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, it's with, the compare and contrast, right? You, you know, yeah. criminalize having meth, you know, but at the same time, don't touch your phone while you're driving. <laughs> it's a big fine, right? <laughs> Unless you're calling to to get some drugs, which oh, are like, or, yeah, right. Yeah. I also I was yeah. trying to hook up with some meth. So can I get off on this? One? <laughs> That'd be an interesting podcast. We'll have to look into some of these laws that are coming down the pike and some of the stuff with tra- as they pertain to traffic and, you know, livability of our area and maybe incorporate them into a future show. Yeah, I think it's important. I definitely do. So, but all in all, I guess to kind of wrap us up, you know, market seems to be plugging and chugging along. No major changes. You know, it feels about the same as it did a month ago. And it sounds like, you know, you're moving and grooving. So definitely staying I strong on your end. We're definitely going to have a good run between now and, you know, early fall for sure. Yeah. I mean, we're, this is, you know, June has its little hiccups with, you know, a lot of distractions and, and then you, you quickly find yourself going into the July 4th weekend, but that's all past us now. And it's open road, no curves all straight away between now and, you know, mid September. So I think we'll see a lot of activity. I think we'll see. A lot of new listings, even though, you know, they'll start to tick down because that window that most people try to list is quickly passing. But we'll see some closed escrows, things going into escrow, and it'll be interesting to to circle back in the fall and see kind of where, where things that leaves things. Yeah, for sure. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? So Yeah. All right. Well, that pretty much wraps up episode 69, everybody. We'll be back, you know, probably next week. We'll see if we can both pencil some time. So any parting words for our audience, Steve? Keep on trucking, and we'll see you when we see you. All right. (laughs) This wraps up episode 69. We'll see you when we see you. Thanks again for listening to our show, and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.